Welcome to the Nurse Surgery Podcast. I'm Mike Wang, and I'm here with my co-host, J.P. Colson. We are here to discuss all things neurosurgical. Hi, this is J.P. Colson, a resident in neurosurgery at Rush University. Please note that this is not a CME event, and the opinions and statements made in this podcast do not reflect those of any institution or professional organization. Now, let's get started. Great. So today on the Nurse Surgery Podcast, we are honored to be joined uh, by another one of the great icons. We had Mike Apuzo on uh, this week, uh, this past week, and now we've got Ed Benzel. I think that uh, Ed really needs no introduction. Ed is one of the lions, one of the founders, if you will, of Neurosurgical Spine. He's a master of biomechanics. He's been chairman. Uh, He's at the Cleveland Clinic, and I think he's trained just about more spine fellows and residents and just about any other uh, North American surgeon. So, Ed, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for inviting me. So, Dr. Benzel, long ago, a few months back when Dr. Wang and I first started this podcast, we were discussing who should we have on, what should we talk about, and from very early on in us slotting episodes and scheduling things out, I've been saying, you know, Dr. Wang, we need to do an episode about morality within neurosurgery. We need to talk about right and wrong in a field that's this high stakes, um, both in terms of doing the right thing, as you like to say, behind the scenes within our departments, and doing the right thing when we talk to patients and talk to their families. And so because, as Dr. Wang said, you are internationally known within neurosurgery and within spine surgery, but also you're known for the talks you give on doing the right thing that I've had the privilege to watch on YouTube and recently I think you shared as a webinar, you seem the ideal guest to come on this platform and talk to our audience about what it really means to do the right thing with the neurosurgery. So Dr. Benzel, with that somewhat lengthy introduction, why don't you just kind of set the stage for us and give us your thoughts. Um, how do you think about or approach morality within this high stakes field? Well, uh, it's a very, uh, it's sort of simplistic. Um, as you've already addressed those words, do the right thing. I think we get so caught up in uh, the pressures, external pressures that we as neurosurgeons face from our institutions, uh, financial uh, and academic pressures, um, pressures to do more um, and not necessarily do the right thing, but uh, make to make more widgets. We need to be cognizant of um, making sure that the operations we do are truly indicated and not originating uh, from the pressures associated with generating revenue, et cetera. Um, we need to um, be cognizant of our own emotions and ourself as well. Um, I think uh, the things that make us as uh, clinicians and as humans and as surgeons um, give us the most reward are doing good for people. We should be rewarded and should be striving to do to do more more good. We should be reimbursed for the good we do, not for how much we do. Um, if we um, operate on a patient and do a great operation, that's that's what surgeons do. Um, that's what we're supposed to do, and that's what's generally thought of as what derives us from a um, fulfillment perspective fulfillment perspective. Um, 
But in reality, if we help people through difficult times, maybe it's not even a surgical procedure. Maybe it's helping somebody with chronic pain who doesn't need surgery and getting them to a better place, uh, helping uh, somebody uh, with a, a malignant tumor that we cannot cure, um, but we can help their family and help them deal with these very difficult times. There's, what I like to say is if you, if you do good for people, at the end of the day, you feel like on the way home, clicking your heels. That's, that's what we should be striving for. Uh, doing what's right leads to us clicking our heels as we leave the door, uh, leave the door to go home. And it's, we should be able to look at ourselves, uh, look in the rearview mirror of our car uh, and look at ourselves and say, Ed Benzel, this was a good day. Um, and, and we should feel good about that. And we should strive to create situations that cause that feeling to swell up within, well up within us. That's very well put, uh, Dr. Benzel. I will tell you that I'm always inspired by your editor's comments at the opening of the journal World Neurosurgery. And I, and I re remember just recently you had an editorial about a patient who had it looked like it was ankylosing spondylitis or something like that. And, and, you know, the indications for doing surgery and trying to treat pain, which can be so elusive, really, really leads to this gray area. But let me ask you something about this concept, because I think as a spine surgeon, I don't believe that most people are bad, uh, bad in their intentions. Their intentions are to try to help people. Do you think there is something that sort of creeps in terms of the mission, in terms of thinking, well, you know, maybe I'll try to help this person and you're not so sure, but... I guess you're incentivized to do it anyways, but you want to be able to help people, right? Yeah. Um, the, the, there's an old adage, which I think is, is very true uh, today. Uh, and that is, the more I do, the less I do. Um, when I was a rookie, uh, it, it just seemed like um, I thought that everything I saw had a surgical solution. Uh, and it was just my job to figure out which one. And, and so uh, the indications for surgery for younger neurosurgeons can be relatively loose. But if we honestly look at the data for lumbar fusions, et cetera, these days, um, we can see that our health-related quality of life metrics aren't all that well, and maybe we're missing the boat. And I believe the letter you were talking about is the letter that I entitled pseudoconcordance. And pseudoconcordance yes, is where yes. you think there's a relationship between the imaging finding and the patient's symptoms, but there really isn't. And so the emphasis I make in that arena is that um, the MRI is a imaging finding. So L45 um, spondylolisthesis is an imaging finding. It, it's an anatomical finding. It is not a diagnosis. The diagnosis, which could lead us to the operating room in this patient, would be mechanical low back pain, pain that is uh, deep and agonizing in nature, pain that is uh, worsened with loading or, or, or ambulating, et cetera, and pain that is uh, diminished uh, by unloading the spine. In other words, the patient can seek and find a position of relative comfort. Because if they can't, if they have 24-7 pain, uh, 
if they have um, uh, low energy level and non-restorative sleep and are on opiates um, or anxiolytics, it is highly unlikely that this patient with an L4-5 spondylolisthesis is going to benefit from our surgical procedure. And so therefore, focusing on the clinical diagnosis, mechanical low back pain is a syndrome composed of three uh, components, the deep and agonizing pain worsened with loading and improved with unloading. That's a clinical diagnosis. The imaging finding is is a it is an imaging finding it's an anatomical finding and so what we don't see oftentimes and it's very hard to to uh, really grasp this um, because patients can fool us and they do all the time um, as we try to get inside their head and understand where they're coming from um, and what they're what they're really experiencing um, but what we don't see oftentimes is the elephant in the room the elephant, uh, the proverbial elephant in which the people examining the elephant have blindfolds on and one person feels the tail, another person feels the leg, another person feels the tusk, and they come up with different conclusion as to what they're dealing with because they don't see what's in the room. And I used a more uh, simplistic um, um, uh, correlate of pseudoconcordance in this uh, same letter and that of uh, ankylosing spondylitis. Let's just say a young man in his uh, mid to late 20s comes in with a spondylolisthesis on his MRI and x-rays, uh, but he also, but he conversely is complaining of a pain that is quite different <clears throat> than um, the pain associated with mechanical back pain. His pain is early in the morning and it gets better as the day progresses, it gets better as he loads his spine. But if the surgeon sees the, the imaging finding of an L4-5 spondylolisthesis and ignores the x-ray finding of sclerosis of the SI joint and operates on this patient, that, has, that causes a long cascade of procedures and operations that people then forget uh, uh, to look beyond the instrumentation, does this, could this patient have possibly have something else? Um, uh, and it's very difficult to do that when there's a lot of hardware already in the patient's back. And so this pseudoconcordance thing, I think, is very real. Um, and I think it's very common. And I think it is a major source of bad outcomes with surgery. Well, Dr. Benzel, I, I love I love what you say about um, as you do more, you do less, and focusing on having the appropriate and stringent indications to make sure that you do the right thing for the right patient. Um, kind of as we touched on, between the countless residents and fellows that you've trained through your career, you must have seen not only countless patients, but all of these rising neurosurgeons join us in the field. I expect in that process you've seen people trying to do the right thing and falling short in a number of different ways. So in addition to the young surgeon whose indications may be broader than the experienced surgeon, what other ways have you seen people rising in neurosurgery fall short of doing the right thing? And perhaps how could you advise our listeners to avoid those pitfalls? I see young surgeons um, being driven by the almighty dollar. 
and not necessarily the dollar itself, but the strong encouragement for the young physician to be, in quotes, productive. I really hate that term in, in this context because productivity in this co the context that hospitals and institutions, uh, in the context of which they use it, um, means revenue generation. To me, productivity should mean the good we do, the good we produce, uh, the, the amount of misery we actually uh, eliminate or improve. Um, not the dollars we generate. And there's often an inordinate amount of pressure applied particularly to the young surgeon to be successful within his or her domain, whether it's in private practice or in, in, um, in academia. You know, older people like myself, um, and I'm not that old, um, but older people like myself uh, can get away with a little bit more. Uh, I, I don't have to produce as much as some of the younger people feel they have to. Um, and so therefore, I, I just uh, um, deal with the institution and they deal with me. But that's not so easy as a young person who is heavily influenced by what he or she perceives to be the pressures um, coming down on them. And in reality, the pressures may not be all that great, but they are perceived to be that great. Well, let me ask you then, Dr. Benville, um, for those rising surgeons who may be functioning in a different healthcare environment um, where their reimbursement is focused on or based on their productivity, how, how can they balance their obligation to their practice or their department and, as you say, their obligation to their patients? They, I mean, these these young surgeons do face these disparate pressures getting pulled in both directions. My answer to that is very simple. Do the right thing. And if you do the right thing, and that means you generate less revenue um, and your salaries deducted or whatever, you know, whatever consequences happen because of that, um, you can still go to bed at night knowing that you did the right thing. Hmm. But it's a real slippery slope when you start saying, well, you know, and I talk with my associates all the time. We feel an immense pressure at our institution to, to do more and be more productive, meaning do more surgery. And so my, my question back is, so you want me to do more unnecessary surgery? And no, 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 no. We want you to do what's appropriate. That, that's, that's the response. But the people that are telling us these things are, uh, and that usually comes from high in the front office of major institutions, are um, speaking out of both sides of their mouth. You know, I, personally, I would um, rather leave my job than to be forced into doing what I feel is the wrong thing. And every time I start thinking about, oh, this could go either way, I, I reel myself back in and say, this could go either way, meaning indications for surgery or not surgery. Um, I reel myself back in and say, yeah, it could go either way, but make the right decision. Don't make it 
based on other external perverted influences. So, Ed, you know what a stalwart I am of what we do as neurosurgeons, right, and, and spine surgeons in particular. And I, I like to think, and I'm pretty sure I'm right about this, that the vast majority of um, spine surgeons don't really have a, a bad intent. They, they're, they really think they can help these folks. I want to also broaden this a little bit because I find that it's almost more rampant in other fields like, oh, say, chiropractic or um, pain management, right? that you see that certainly yes. a lot more commonly, right? And so can you speak a little bit to that? I mean, I, I don't want to just pick yes. on the spine surgeons out there. No, I, I think you're absolutely right. This is, uh, well, first of all, if, if we just simply look at this chronic pain thing, we spend a third of our healthcare dollars on chronic pain syndromes in the United States, ranging from GI to back pain, headache, temporal mandibular joint pain, gynecological pain, et cetera. And most of that money is spent, uh, is uh, like uh, uh, being thrown down a rat hole. It's not really going to get us anywhere um, from a treatment perspective. And you're right. It's not just the surgeons. In fact, we're probably a very small part of the, um, of the community of medicine that is um, I'm not I don't know how, the right word here, but l- l- take this very loosely. That is abusing the system, um, and it, it, again, as a young surgeon, it's really easy to not know the way. Um, and you know, you think everything that surgery should work for everything. It's just it, you know, look at that slip, that L45 spondy, and this patient has back pain. It's it just makes sense. Shouldn't I do a fusion for that patient? Um, but now maybe not thinking through it a little bit more clearly. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, the, I, I would agree. Uh, pain management and many other specialties um, are uh, very aggressive with very little um, solid um, um, uh, process-based research to back up their their uh, indications for procedures and revenue generation. You know, so where's the data? You know, we have a lot of trouble proving that lumbar fusion is, is effective. Our data isn't convincing. And, you know, if we really look at our health-related quality of life metrics pre-op and post-op in, in the large scheme of things from spine surgery perspective or pain management perspective, I'm sure it's very, very poor that we're really not doing mankind a big favor in either of those domains, pain management or spine pain surgery. So, Dr. Benzel, if I could ask you to, uh, I suppose, put down your scalpel and pick up your pen, your, one of your other major roles in the field, as we've discussed, is as editor-in-chief of the World Neurosurgery Journal. Um, Obviously, as, as we all know, there are many perverse incentives within academia and within publishing as well, uh, some obvious, some more subtle. Could you speak a bit from your perspective within the journal and at the head of a journal for ways that you see people fall short or rise to the occasion and do the right thing within publishing in academia? Well, um, world neurosurgery has a little bit of a different perspective than the other um, uh, U.S. or North American journals like Journal of Neurosurgery or Neurosurgery, um, 
it is um, in international journals. So there's a little bit of leeway there as far as uh, um, because of the audience that we serve. But um, a large number of manuscripts are, are clearly uh, written to pad curriculum vitae's um, and um, particularly letters to the editor. There have been a number of occasions where we um, flagged a person who sends in a letter to the editor every month or every other month, um, evidently, because they're not really good letters, to add uh, his CV. And we are very cognizant of that. Um, and so, it, you know, really good articles um, are, are, are precious. Um, and many of them are, uh, that are sent to all the journals are sub, substandard. Um, and they're driven by um, academic pressures. Um, so, you know, if you really have a great discovery, there's, yeah, sure, there's academic uh, intent in publishing, but you also have a great discovery or a great finding. Um, uh, when the findings aren't so great, you still see this stuff coming. And we have to sort through that and try to make sure that we publish the truth, if you will. Ed, that's uh, that's that's great words of advice, and, and it's such a complex space. I want to wrap up the podcast today, and, and we got to have you back because there's so many things you can talk about. But tell us about the running and the athleticism and this thing about where you run the number of miles uh, of the age of years on your birthday. Tell us a little about how that started, and and uh, and if I mean, it seems like it's an asymptotic type of effort. So it's, I'm so curious about it. Well, I don't do this anymore. Um, I'm now, you're getting me way out of, uh, I, I put down my knife and now I put down my pen and I now can philosophize about senescence. Okay. Senescence is the world's most effective and greatest thief. It robs all of us who live long enough of our vitality, our speed, our athleticism, uh, but it generally doesn't rob us of our mind, which uh, it, it does in some circumstances. Um, so um, uh, uh, when I approximately, when I was getting ready to uh, move to from Louisiana to New Mexico, where I went uh, to be the head of a neurosurgery program and eventually started a spine fellowship and a neurosurgery residency, I ran uh, 40 miles in one day. I thought that was, and it was close to my birthday. And I thought, well, that's pretty cool. Um, uh, it, and I, at, in the day, I was very fast, very strong, and very, uh, ha had a lot of endurance. Um, and so, and I ran a bunch of marathons and was very successful in triathlons, including a couple of full-length triathlons. Um, and so then I said, well, let's do this every year. You know, it's, and it's just kind of like the little farm boy who goes out and shows his dad, look, I can lift this calf. And um, and he says, I'm going to lift this calf every day. And when the cow when the cow grows up, I'll be strong enough to lift the cow. But this asymptotic relationship that you speak of ends at some point. 
where the calf just becomes too heavy for the boy to lift. Um, and so I got up to 64 miles a day and I was becoming slower. Senescence was robbing me uh, of my strength and my endurance and et cetera. Um, and uh, the, the, one of the problems was uh, this asymptotic relationship. Uh, and so that was seven years ago, six or seven years ago. So this asymptotic relationship you talk about isn't just being able to run the increased distance each year. It's related to um, not, uh, uh, not becoming slower and taking more and more and more time to train for that kind of a run. And it just became, I, you know, let's not forget that I'm a neurosurgeon. That's a full-time job. I can't be spending all this time running. And, and so I started cutting back and, I be, and I'm much slower than I used to be. Again, senescence has um, stolen this from me. However, um, I feel good. Um, and I guess that's what it's all about. And I talked to some of my friends who are as obsessed, are obsessed with running or endurance things as I was. And I said, maybe, just maybe I was doing the wrong thing. Maybe I was overtraining. Maybe um, um, I have atrial fibrillation now, which is seen more in long-term runners um, because I overtrained a little cardiac hypertrophy, which was physiologic at one point, which is no longer physiologic, leading to me having a, uh, an ablation, which was successful, and I'm very thankful. But I'm also paying for that, too, because I'm, I'm on eloquence for life. Uh, and so um, it's been a long tail, but I wonder if I should have not been so full of myself thinking I can, you know, be this uh, Herculean man who can run forever and, and live forever. Um, that was maybe fool's gold. And it might be better if we temper our exercise and our running um, uh, and uh, whatever things we do in the weight room or whatever uh, with a little bit of temper our enthusiasm and look at the long run because this is really a marathon. I'm, I'm just looking back at what maybe I, I could have done differently. Um, but here I am today feeling good not feeling good about running so slow. One of the things that keeps me running the most is my dog. I love getting out in the forest and turning my dog loose and just watching her go nuts, um, you know, running like a mad dog. Well, Dr. Benz, we appreciate your time so much. Um, I think we've taken you from the operating room to the publishing house, to the track and field, and, and you've talked about doing the right thing for patients in print and for yourself and your own health. So. Thank you again so much for joining us on the podcast. We both look forward to having you back again. Okay. Thank you very much. This has been great.